Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello. Hello. And welcome to the Cookbook Circle podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Victoria. And we've set out to review the UK's most popular cookbooks, those that you probably have at home and haven't opened in a while. We take one cookbook each episode to cook from and to stress test, digging out their best recipes, bringing them to life again, and hopefully inspiring you to do so too. We collected and collated as many of the best cookbook lists as we could find online to make a definitive rundown of the most popular. Each podcast will take one of these books, cook some of the recipes and share our thoughts with you. And this time it's How, How to, to Eat. Eat by Nigella Lawson, published for the first time in 98. Some facts that you might have known about Nigella. So her father was Nigel Lawson, conservative chancellor, and her mother was Vanessa Salmon socialite apparently we still use that word <laughs> Nigella studied medieval and modern languages at Oxford it's easy to forget that she was a journalist actually I feel like I knew that once but I completely forgotten she began a restaurant column in the spectator in 1985 and then became literary editor of the Sunday Times and that's where she met her husband John Diamond they got married three years later in Venice and then apparently suggested that she write a cookbook with a title of classic simplicity and that How to Eat was born. There's kind of an interesting contrast of the title with Delia Smith's How to Cook, which Nigel Slater mentions in his ode to Nigella in the 20th anniversary piece in OFM. In the fact that like this is a book that's about meals, not about recipes, which I think she kind of she kind of brings in in the preface, doesn't she? Yeah. And says, I'm not a chef. <laughs> I love that. When you Google Nigella in this book, there are so many academic papers that speak about Nigella and the role of feminism and domesticity. That's an easy word to say. And one of them was really interesting. It was called Feminism Domesticity. There we go again. Domesticity, there's a T in there. A popular culture by someone called Lee Shapiro Sanders. And she's got a whole chapter called Consuming Nigella which explores feminism in food culture through Nigella. She says she's a cross between Sophia Loren and Debbie Reynolds and Pink Cashmere Cardigan and a fetching gingham <laughs> apron. But that she argues that all of this is done with irony and that, that irony 
wouldn't exist without people like Martha Stewart and Delia Smith. Basically, you could just write a whole dissertation on Nigella and the role that she's had to play in food and feminism. Especially, like, I think it was quite a male-heavy time, you know, male-chef-heavy back when this would have come out. Yeah, and she is so unapologetically feminine. It, it works for her and it, and it pays the bills in an extraordinary way and in, no, in a way that I don't think any other female chef before, obviously, or since has quite dominated the market in that sense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really true. It's, so this book is widely regarded as a classic, rave reviews. The Sunday Telegraph called it the most valuable culinary guide published this decade. January Magazine called it almost biblical. She won Author of the Year at the 2001 British Book Awards. I think she'd had a couple of more by then, but it certainly contributed. And did you know, Nigella turned down an OBE. Oh, I didn't know that. What was her reasoning? Does she have reasoning? She didn't give one. It's very mysterious. She's one of the few people that have turned one down that haven't given a reason. But anyway, what do you think of the book? It's giant. Mm -hmm. I think because it doesn't have pictures, it means you, you don't flick through and kind of pick a couple of things that maybe you'll cook later on. You have to kind of start at the beginning and work through. And of course, you don't have to read every single word because it's 2020 and uh, <laughs> there's meals for eight people in there and I haven't seen eight people in a room since February but is it beautifully written yes and is it I can understand why it's a classic the minute you start reading it it's just it's timeless as well I think yeah. particularly for quote-unquote British cooking which I don't really know what that is and I don't really think it exists but it certainly is I think yeah it definitely deserves what people say about it the thing that you talk about Nigel Slater because it feels almost like a Nigel Slater book there's just this beautiful prose and it's kind of a non-fiction book with recipes which I think is how I would describe all of Nigel Slater's books absolutely it's hard sometimes to pick out the recipes like there are massive bodies of text and then there's just kind of almost side notes in the margin that there's a recipe in there somewhere and sometimes it's not even a recipe it's just like there's one section that it says good tomato sauce and then you look in the text and it just says buy the best tomato sauce <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah I, the first night I got it I just brought it to bed as a bedtime reading it, it feels like something you need to kind of excuse the pun digest and <laughs> and kind of work through and like pull out what you what you want to cook them but it's extensive yeah, there's a really beautiful, and I wanted to read it on this, our first podcast in there that I thought it kind of was quite poignant for our first podcast and what she's saying. So it's on page four. So she's very much the introduction. And she says, in literature, teachers talk about key texts. They exist too in cooking. That's what I mean by basics. Everyone's list of basics is, of course, different. Your idea of home cooking, your whole experience of eating, colours, your sense of what food should be included in the culinary canon. Cooking, indeed, is not so very different from literature. What you have read previously shapes how you read now. And so we eat and so we cook. And I just thought, firstly, that's beautiful. Yeah. And so true. And it feels a bit, it felt a little bit like what we exactly what we're trying to do yeah which is to help people and ourselves not just run to the nearest 
trendy book Mm -hmm. that is out and costs 40 pounds but you know you have the cookbooks that you have for a reason let's figure out what what you can do for for the food you like within them yeah I mean that plays into everything she preaches and and still does about kind of flexibility of recipes as well in that you don't have to follow her recipes to the letter that you can sub stuff in you sub in what you have at home what you feel like and that's one of the things I love about her like even recently with the latest book she has been playing around with a fish finger thing and the yeah. <laughs> putting the banana skin in the curry and yeah of course that's left field for a lot of people but it's just based on what she actually wants to eat or what she has at home and there's no snobbery there at all yeah and I think that that still now what she's doing you know more than 20 years later is like she's not ashamed to borrow and say oh I got this even on you know the introduction to her new show in 2020 is there's this journalist on Twitter that I read this yeah. uh, I read the recipe from her home cooking and it's not home cooking for me and she does that all the way through this book she's like my friend this person or you know she's always referencing other chefs and friends and cooks and I think that that's again goes back to her not being full of ego yeah. and just being able to what I enjoy to cook and of course I'm going to take influence from whoever I can yeah absolutely and I love I love that it's more to just kind of bring everything together in one place I agree with that review of it as being almost biblical it is and the amount of work the sheer amount of work that must have gone into this is insane so yeah it's a it's a, kudos. It's a lifetime of work the fact that she's written a book after it is ridiculous I think I'd just retire do you think that her level of innuendo and kind of sensuality <laughs> has just has ramped up since then? Or do you think the beginnings, the beginnings of it are in here, I feel? Yeah, there was something, something I cooked, which we'll come on to, that I've underlined. It's the only thing in the whole book I've underlined and put exclamations while it's next to it. And it's about, well, I'll tell you what it is first and maybe you can figure out what it's about. I love this combination of cold, thickly, nutty, buff-coloured paste and hot, lemony, sweet shards of meat. Oh, my God. Wow. I mean, that's why I made it, obviously. <laughs> you know, hot shards of meat, buff-coloured. I feel like the innuendo is, is rife. <laughs> There's um, a nice veggie version of that, of your <laughs> shards of meat, when she's talking about making a mushroom sandwich. And you can, you can like, picture it in the show, right, where she's standing in the kitchen, and she's always standing and eating. And... Um, she talks about how you bite into this mushroom sandwich and the juices are like running down your arms. <laughs> yeah, but I love it. I mean, there's nothing that I don't love about my channel. I'll be perfectly honest. Should we talk about what we actually cook? Yes, you gave a little hint. <laughs> so I think it is testament to this book. Excuse the pun as we're talking about biblical tomes. There was so much I wanted to cook. And I wrote, I can't, I got like a, a long list of things I wanted to cook and then I had to put it to my husband to see what he actually would eat if I cooked so because I couldn't not do it I did the coca-cola ham because I feel like it's a it's a classic of the nigella genre and I've never done it before yeah but I felt like I couldn't only do that so I did do buff colored paste and hot shards of meat <laughs> which uh, is hummus and seared lamb if you didn't guess already and then I did uh, her fancy cake yes oh my god how was that did you like the cake was it fancy 
It was fun. Like it was fancy. I I bought. You have to make it in a brioche mold, which I have to admit I didn't know what it was until I googled it and. I, I presumed it was like a brioche tin, like a loaf tin. Yeah. That's not the case. Um, <laughs> it's a big flourishy, looks like a flower ah. thing. Yeah, but I bought um, a fairly cheap one and the cake was great. It's like a lemony, it's completely gluten free as well because there's no flour. It's just almonds and eggs and sugar. It was incredibly easy to do as well. I do have a KitchenAid, so you kind of have to whisk the egg whites up until they're stiff. Wait. So, and <laughs> my only, like, I guess, question about it, I had this down to ask you, actually, as you are the uh, patisserie chef amongst us. As you know, a brioche mold is this kind of big, tall, kind of bowl shape. Yeah. It looks like if you, like a flan mold, but like tall. So she makes reference to how you couldn't make a Victoria sponge in one of those but then i was thinking could you make this fancy cake in a a smaller cake tin definitely i think she probably or from what i remember i think she just does it because of the shape so i think you could do it in any kind of tin you want but it's just probably less visually appealing but there's no reason uh the only reason i can think of is if the tin is especially to help it rise because there's a there's a cake, an American recipe called, I think it's angel food cake or angel cake. And that has loads of whipped egg whites. And did you say this one does too? Yeah, it is. There is a lot of volume of, of cake mix. And you need a certain material of the tin to help it rise. But I mean, either way, I remember when I made that, I use uh, like a silicon bunt tin and it worked fine. So I think it would be okay. Yeah. I suppose anything quite tall. Yes. Because, yeah, like I said, it is a lot of volume, so a bunt tin would be also fine. But it, it was great. And she writes about a syrup that she had in a cake like this in the restaurant Morrow, I think. And I didn't make the syrup because it included boiling 10 clementines or something. And I don't have time for that. But it was perfect as it was, just with some icing sugar and lemon zest on top. It was nice. great. I loved Yum. it. My husband does not like cake, really, what? but he went back for more. I know. I apologize what for a him. <laughs> yeah, he went back for more. Yeah. And so I thought that, again, is testament to it. What about your hunky meat? Yeah, my um, <laughs> my hot chunks of meat. So the hummus and lamb was great. It was perfect. It was exactly like the kind of lamb chopped hummus that you would get in a Lebanese or a Turkish restaurant, which I absolutely love. The hummus is a bit of a labor of love it took you know almost two days because she requests that you soak the beans and you did I did I soaked them for 37 hours or something and then cooked them for another two I never do that I always just I glaze over when I see that and I I get the tins so yeah props (laughs) I would say the payoff is worth it like they they did taste mm. amazing and it makes you feel really chefy when you cook when you finally have soaked them you've spent 30 whatever hours waiting and you finally go to soak them and you get to put like a whole onion and bay leaves and like whole garlic in the water yeah. to cook them I felt very much like you know I should be on some kind of master chef at that point but no it was great that my only thing so I made two batches of the hummus because it you have 300 grams of 
chickpeas mm. which is a lot and I don't have a food processor but I have one of those kind of mini blenders things which worked fine but I just did two batches but she requests that you put yogurt in with the hummus wow. mix yeah and I wasn't convinced about that so I did half and half, half and half okay yeah that is bordering on sacrilegious yeah and she does she does make a note yeah. of that uh she just kind of says well it's the way I do it and I wasn't sure but what it led to the the half of it with yogurt in tasted just a lot more mm. mild than it was a lot kind of creamier they were both really lovely and creamy because you know they've cooking water and they have tahini and oil and all that good stuff but it was creamier and it was just a milder taste and I wasn't totally convinced about it but I came back to it a day or so later and once the kind of flavors had even developed in the fridge I I rated it with the yogurt but I wouldn't do it again with the yogurt did you notice that she suggests adding creme fraiche cream or yogurt again to horseradish Hmm. Yeah, no. I mean, I guess, I mean, I'd love yogurt and sour cream and all those things. And I think they're great for mellowing out spicy stuff. But for hummus or horseradish, I like that flavour. I don't want it to be more mellow. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> How do you cook the lamb then to put on the hummus? It's literally just you get lean lamb. I got some lamb steaks and you just cut it up as small as possible and then fry it in some oil until it goes kind of crispy and charred so I have a raw cast iron pan which I love like my firstborn <laughs> child and I used that because I thought that would probably pick up some of the seasoning and the and then we got some Turkish bread to go with it from a shop down the road from here and it was just it was great you're supposed to put toasted pine nuts on the top as well but the only pine nuts I could find were nine great British pounds and I don't know if this is a <laughs> for sort of Brexit or whatever, but I'm not going to pay £9 for a bag of pine nuts. So what did you cook? It's a fabulous book, amazing guide to anyone who wants to learn how to cook. Um, I know what's coming. (laughs) But it's not that friendly for ye olde vegetarians. So, (laughs) I mean, there there are definitely things in there and she definitely um, references veggie things but it's it's a little bit harder to rifle out the veggie stuff especially the mains or the savory things so all the kind of ones that I had my eye on were very simple recipes but ones I mightn't have cooked to like using a recipe so I made the pea risotto for one which I don't think I've used a recipe for risotto for a while and it's actually really interesting to go back and do it to the letter again and see that it's, it's way better I've basically been butchering it all along um, but I also made just because I'm a goody teacher that way I made the lemon curd and also these pistachio biscuits which I'll come back to but they were delightful okay talk us through the pea risotto was it difficult because risotto is also I, always I think seen as this like difficult kind of project cook that nobody can get right it's not difficult it's just needy you know you just have to stand there and keep stirring and ladling in stuff and but it's it's not like technically very difficult and what's nice about this one if I had made a pea risotto before I would have really lazily had like the pot of hot stock onion and rice and wine and all that stuff and I would put the peas into the stock 
And then I would ladle that stock into the rice. But by the end, those peas <laughs> cooked beyond <laughs> submission. And they vaguely resemble a pea. Like grey. <laughs> yeah, they are so mushy. Whereas with this one, he tells you to cook some peas off in a pan. And then you take away half and you add some stock to the ones that are left in the pan with some parmesan. And you blitz it into like a pea puree, basically. Oh, yeah, which is really yummy. And then you so you cook your risotto as normal. You put in the rice, you put in some wine and then you start the ladling in of the stock and just kind of stirring it all till it's absorbed. And then you only put the, the peas that you set aside in like quite a bit later because they're kind of already semi-cooked. You've cooked them in butter already. And then at the end, you start with the pea puree. So it's all really fresh Mm. and everything's just cooked really well. There's like a nice bit of nutmeg in there, which I think is a little bit of a game changer in there with peas. It works really well to just kind of give some, I don't know, warmth. And yeah, loved it. It was great. It kind of made me rethink risotto and how I haven't been doing a great job all this time. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds amazing. Did you have to find fresh peas? No, she recommends using frozen petit pois, of course. But I had like three bags of regular peas in the freezer, so I just used them. Yeah, would recommend it for that recipe is for two people, which I feel is just right. Like comfort, cheesy, warming, delicious. But you feel like it's good enough to not, it's not just about the cheese. I feel like sometimes recipes for risotto are just make this mushy rice thing and then put loads of cheese on top and it'll be fine. (laughs) No, it's so, I know what you mean. And I'm okay with that. But this one is not that. It's it's very fresh and springy tasting. So no, I think it's like a a solid revisiting of of a classic. Love it. What about your biscuits? Let's talk about your sweet, your sweet treat. So these are called, they were called like pistachio kipferls. That means crescent, apparently. But um, I have made before these vanilla versions of these from Rachel Allen's big book. Are they vanilla flavoured or just (laughs) non-sexual? Oh, yeah. Look at you getting all Nigella. (laughs) She reads one book once. Are we calling non-Nigella recipes vanilla now? No, they are vanilla flavoured with like ground almonds or ground hazelnuts. Basically, you just dredge them in icing sugar when they're warm out of the oven and they're really crumbly and quite simple and delicious. So these are basically very like that. Instead of using hazelnuts or almonds, you use pistachios, which in my mind are one of the superior nuts I, I don't know if you would agree Top nuts. no yeah I love them it's up there with pecans any peanut basically <laughs> what about peanuts <laughs> peanuts <are> t- <laughs> I forgot that pe- peanuts are actually a thing in their own <laughs> yeah yeah no peanuts pistachios pecans pine nuts I think we could <laughs> we could firmly agree that the superior range but yeah What's good about these is that they're not very sweet. They're quite salty, actually. You do put a little pinch of salt in. Basically, you toast the pistachios, grind them all up, brown them, grind them, 
cream some butter, mix in some icing sugar and flour and then pinch of salt and the ground pistachios and then you roll them into like little half spoons and then you bake them and they're really quick. They're only like 10, 15 minutes and then you dust them with icing sugar when they're warm, which means they kind of go that nice. It becomes like a proper coating. It's not just like dust that's gonna like evaporate when you breathe on them. <laughs> Love breathing on biscuits. Um, <laughs> but it's a proper coating. They'd probably be quite a nice edible gift. And they look beautiful too. I mean, everyone can see your pictures on Instagram, but yeah, they look presentable. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I did <laughs> I want to please. <laughs> please presentable biscuits. No, they are. They're cute. And I also think you could probably dip them in a little bit of chocolate if you're feeling fruity. Well, I see. Apart from the lemon curd that you're going to tell us about now, you just made green things. <laughs> so you needed another colour. <laughs> Pia Zotto pistachio biscuits. Yeah. I don't know what that's about. I mean, neither of which are particularly healthy. Lemon curd. I mean, I love a lemon curd. Have you ever made it at home before? I have never made it. Do you like the dried stuff? Yeah, I think I don't know if I'd ever buy it in a jar because I wouldn't know what to do with it. I have a jar still of ginger curd in my cupboard and I've got no idea what to do with it. And I look at it and think I should use that. Yeah, this is about your butter thing, that you don't like butter. That's the problem here. I mean, there's no need to out me so soon (laughs) in this podcast as someone who doesn't like butter. Like, how can I talk about food and not like butter? You can definitely talk about food, but you look. I'll take the butter and cheese. You take the meat. It, it's all good. Yeah, no, because for me, curd is the best on toast with lots of butter. This curd recipe is kind of buttery as well. It's it's a pretty classic recipe. You kind of heat sugar, eggs, extra egg yolks, butter, lemon juice, lemon zest, and that's it. And you just keep kind of slowly heating it, not scrambling it because that would be very gross and yeah my one gripe and it's not particularly with Nigella but it's every chef that writes a recipe for lemon curd is they always say just cook it until it looks like lemon curd and it looks like lemon curd pretty early on (laughs) because it's kind of yellow and liquidish (laughs) but you have to be kind of brave and take it a bit further than you want to in order not to have like a runny mess I feel like the warnings are so frequent and loud about you curling the mixture or making sweet scrambled eggs, basically, that people just become so afraid that they're put off. I think it feels like a waste, but you don't want to waste food. No. And, you know, eggs, so many eggs. (laughs) It is a lot of eggs. It makes quite a lot of curd, actually. It makes a couple of jars worth. But also a good thing for presents, right? You gave it as presents. Yes, I gave it to our very kind neighbour who donated her Wi-Fi password, which is like the millennial equivalent of like pulling me out of a river. Lending you a cup of sugar. Yeah, exactly. So she got some and I don't know what she thought of it, though. She could be lying dead next door. Um, That's terrible. Sorry. If you're listening, neighbour, I really hope you're okay. So do you have any of the recipes in the book that you wish you had made or that you will go back and make? Because it's a book we have now. I would make the, did you see the Irish tarte tatan? No. I'm being extra Irish by saying tarte tatan. (laughs) 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 But it's the rhubarb one with a scone slash scone 
face. I did see it. Yeah, I thought that sounded great. I was excited because I love Tarte Tatan, but it's not rhubarb season. No. I walked away. Yeah, totally fair. <laughs> and the thing that I would make again if I had to pick one, actually, I didn't make it this time, but it's like one of my first cooking memories, not my first cooking memories because I was like a teenager, but I remember watching Nigella's TV show with my mom in our pajamas on the weekend morning, I think. And we she makes like a giant Yorkshire pudding in the baking tray. And then she just puts like mascarpone and like, I can't remember if it's syrup or honey on there. And wow. yeah, it's decadence. I remember watching that and my mom and I realized that we had all the ingredients. We made mm. it in the morning and ate it for like basically brunch. And it was insanely good. And that was in this book. And I didn't realize that until we started looking at it again. So that is something that I would definitely love to make again. Because it was fucking delicious. That is beautiful. I love that memory. Yeah. Was there anything that you were missing that you wish you could have made? So we are talking now and it is late November. And Mm -hmm. so we are getting into kind of Christmas feelings. And she does have a whole Christmas section, which is quite a traditional, there's lots of you know, planning the day in terms of cooking your roast and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I've seen this before and I always wanted to make it, but her clementine cake. Yeah. I would love to try and make. I know it's probably on, you know, if you have your food network on over Christmas, you have a clementine or two, I don't know, and you just boil them down for like four hours or something and then you kind of put that whole clementine all blended up into your cake mix and I just think I love clementines I live for Christmas when they're just perfect and I think I'd love that so I would like to try it. and I probably will this Christmas because I've got a lot more time on my hands and it sounds amazing yeah those ones are so good I've made one like that before with oranges and it, I think it's is it ground almonds, this one, or is it polenta or something? I, f- I think that one might be gluten-free. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's very before its time with all these gluten-free recipes. There is a lot that's before its time, I think. There's a lot of, like, miso stuff in here as well and, like, <laughs> Japanese-inspired recipes. And that's all in the low-fat section, I noticed that. Like, the, the low-fat section is basically miso with everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so true, actually. But also... This is when, (laughs) yeah, we do love. I think this book was one of the reasons why goose fat became so like readily available in supermarkets. I remember her recommending using it as the fat for roast potatoes. Mm. And I think that she might be, yeah, I think she's definitely the reason why that started to become more of a thing. And Kind of like Ateggy and like he takes credit for having that are available in a lot of shops. I think Nigella did the same thing for good old use fat. <laughs> Fun fact. That is not a fact. That is me declaring something as fact. It is not necessarily true. Okay, so you would make the clementine cake. Anything else? Uh, lots of things. Pasta and anchovy sauce. Mm. I would love to make because I'm endlessly trying to recreate this pasta dish thing that I had in Japan once that was very anchovy heavy and I've never been able to do it and I'm hoping that might fill the void and also on my list was the beef stroganoff because firstly beef stroganoff is great and secondly anytime I make it 
I feel like I firstly I learn something and secondly I feel like I'm in <laughs> Julia and Julia or whatever that film is called yeah. and I'm you know a true domestic goddess and I would absolutely I didn't really talk about it but I would absolutely make the Coca-Cola ham again. It was spectacular. And I'm not going to talk about it too much because everybody's made it. Everyone knows it's delicious. It's it's just, it's iconic, but it it really, really is. Wow. How much Coke do you use? Shitloads. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I had a tiny ham, like a, it was 1.4 kilograms. And the recipe says to use two kilograms of ham and two liters of coke so I got in that same ratio yeah so a liter and a half of coke and it wasn't enough I had to add we only have diet coke in the house so I added another diet coke and then some water and then it still wasn't quite enough and it's just not particularly pleasant like looking or smelling thing (laughs) as you go you know as you go through the boiling in coke that's but it's great. And the glaze that she puts on it has like breadcrumbs and mm. uh, mustard. And when you're making the glaze, it looks like Christmas cake, wow. <laughs> which is quite funny. And it kind of messes with your head. Uh, but then it is just, it's great. It, obviously, we ate it for days. Um, so I'd, I'd absolutely make that again. I'd be interesting in making a much bigger ham and seeing if we liked it, you know, in that kind of Christmas table yeah presented ham whereas we kind of pulled it all apart and had it in like sandwiches and stuff because it all kind of fell apart so we didn't slice it how that you would imagine it to be but I would like to try it to see if it was that big but I don't have a pot that big and that you know I I don't have enough money for the sugar tax to pay for that much (laughs) coke (laughs) that must feed quite an amount of people then that two kilo ham yeah go that way when I bought it at the shop there was a like a two kilo or just over two kilo ham and I picked it up and I was like I just can't justify yeah cooking this you know for what yeah like you know as much delicious as it was we would have been sick of it by the end oh you would have got the ham sweats <laughs> yeah and nobody needs those soothing <laughs> like salt and cool <laughs> one hilarious little mistake I noticed in the hummus recipe for my hummus and lamb was that when she's talking about bringing everything together so you've cooked the chickpeas you've got your tahini you've got your olive oil you've got everything ready to put into the blender she does not mention putting the chickpeas into the blender (laughs) she mentions all the other ingredients and I've read it like four or five times and not once does she say put the chickpeas into the blender she says put everything else Oh my god! I, I used my initiative and I put the chickpeas in. <laughs> I did think that was hilarious. How many poor souls do you think cook their bloody chickpeas for? Like how many hours? Thirty-six hours. <laughs> <laughs> they make them and forget to put them in the bloody blender. They sit down, eat some tahini paste with their lamb, and they're like, "Ah, something's missing." <laughs> talking about it being lovely and creamy and smooth and they're like well what do I do with the chickpeas that I've spent two days making oh that's so Mm. funny so this book featured on a number of lists the Observer Food Monthly Times Telegraph Vogue loads it was very much in the top kind of five or six when we collated all these lists Hannah do you believe it deserves a spot at the top of the kind of best UK cookbooks of all time. Yes, 
I 100% do. I definitely think it's like a manual. It's like a manual for not just food, but possibly life. (laughs) (laughs) The the 50th anniversary cover. Um, yeah, I'm looking for a quote on there, basically. I'm hoping to make the big time. Um, but it's, yeah, no, 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 it's amazing. And it's just, maybe if you're, someone's going to like university or they've decided to just get into food more, I feel like this is the perfect thing to have on your bookshelf to just like browse through. And even if you just don't cook from it. So for me, it is definitely worthy of a place on the list. I do agree. Yeah, I think it feels like, yeah, a a Bible. We've said it a number of times now. I think you could also easily give it to a parent as well, as someone who doesn't want to go and get all these, you know, miso and zatar and all this stuff. There's none of that in there. It's very accessible, things that you'd have at your local shop, no matter where you are. I think it's great. I think it's also good in terms of, you can have it on your Kindle, for example. You don't need to have this giant book in your house because it doesn't have any pictures. So you're not losing out on anything if you don't have it in physical form, which feels like a novelty in the cookbook game. So the cookbook circle rating, for those of you who don't know, which is all of you right now, includes a cookbook's usability accessibility so are the recipes easy to read are they easy to follow do they take how much knowledge do they take what about the ingredients are they like I was just saying about would you have them to hand do you have to go out of your way do you have to omit ingredients because it's important with books aesthetics I think also need to be a part of our ratings because yeah. you know we have to judge books by their cover because they're cookbooks uh, yeah and not just uh, cover but the font I think is supremely important (laughs) (laughs) there are many people who will disagree with me but I love a good font so no books written in comic sans please for the cookbook it is the most fun font but no (laughs) it doesn't have a place and then the most important metric of course is how veggie friendly they are I'm sorry I am sorry (laughs) I, I do feel like I have to stick that in there because it there are so many books just because you're vegetarian doesn't mean you don't love food and there are so many books that are top of the chart great but how much of it am I actually going to be able to cook so I'm putting my foot down it's important it's going in so Hannah Mm -hmm. out of five Nigella innuendos how many innuendos would you give this book I would give this surprisingly given that it's not necessarily meeting all of the criteria, i.e. the veggie-friendly criteria, because there is only a small percentage of these, as I've said. I would give this a luscious, buff-coloured <laughs> five out of five. I'm going there. Five? She's going there. Um, first episode, wow. I'm sorry. I might set the bar too high, but how can you? You just can't. You can't deny the amount of work that's gone into this and how extensive and lovingly written it all is so I'm saying it five innuendos out of five (laughs) (laughs) and Victoria how many Nigella innuendos are you giving this I am not going to give it five innuendos I don't (gasps) I mean I'm going to be I'll be I'll be real with you 
like you said, it's not veggie friendly. I also, you know, don't think aesthetically it's as beautiful as, as it could be. It doesn't have pictures. <laughs> I keep going on about pictures. I, <laughs> I'm actually an adult. I do. I can read and I do. But clearly, aesthetics are more important to me than I thought prior to this. So I'll be talking to my therapist about that this week. <laughs> you know what else doesn't have pictures? What? The Bible. <laughs> and people like that book. <laughs> I, would, I think I would give How to Eat and the Bible three innuendos out of five. <laughs> three innuendos out of five. Oh my God. You're a tough little pistachio cookie, Victoria. That is bordering on sacrilegious, but I'm Look, gonna, and I'm gonna let you away with that. I'm, I'm sorry. And I wouldn't say it to my jealous face. So I'll take it back if she listens and go for <laughs> it's, it's just a ruthless ploy to make her to be <laughs> Take what we can get. <laughs> okay, so on average it's a four out of five. Four, which is over. which is great. Sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Is this how it's going to go? Am I going to be the good cop and you're going to be the bad cop? I, I think this might be setting a, a precedent. When it comes to Nigella, I think you are including the person that Nigella is. Yes. I am judging the art, not the artiste. And you. <laughs> so I think that's what's happened here. You have looked beyond its flaws mm-hmm. to give it a five out of five. And I have isolated the book i give nigella and her body of work five innuendos out of five but (laughs) (laughs) but this book in particular for me it is not okay yeah i'm guilty as charged you're absolutely right i I can't i just can't i can't separate the people from the books and i think this may be an issue that will arise again and again with certain chefs who are yet to be named, but who also appear in our ultimate list. And I will expect you to hold me to account on that. <laughs> <laughs> and I shall do so. And, and you, I, who knows? I think I'm just too nice. What chefs I will defend to the death and you, and, and you, and you will fight me on. You're the baby. I'm just like a Labrador puppy about all chefs. <laughs> and I have no objectivity whatsoever. Okay, that's it. <laughs> That's it. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening. We're back next time. (laughs) See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Cookbook Circle. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and let us know what you think by leaving a review. You can see how the recipes from this episode turned out on our Instagram at Cookbook Circle. And if you make anything from the books that we talk about, please don't forget to tag us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 